Welcome to this message from Alpha and Omega Christian Fellowship. We hope that you'll be blessed and encouraged by what we have to share. But this morning I want to start a bit differently. You know me. If I was a bit thirsty right now, sitting here, which I am, and I don't want water, which they kindly provided, but rather want something more bubbly and fizzy on my palate. What drink would most of you suggest I have? Yeah, Helen's on the money. Most of us would want... I paid Siobhan. Coke. Right? Why is that the first thing to our minds? Why is that the first thing we recognize and remember? Is it the name? Is it the logo? Is it the color? Black drink, you know, red. Is it the, normally it's the bottle shape. Now we have these really slim anorexic cans, right? Normally it's the bottle shape of Coke. Is it, is it that? Is it the fizz? Maybe it's all of them. Maybe it's all of the above. What is that called when we talk about the name, the color, the logo, the trademark shape? Yes, it's the branding. It's the brand. Did you know Coke is no longer the world's largest and most valuable brand? It hasn't been since 2013. In fact, it's number six this year. When I was growing up, Coke was the best brand. Everyone knew Coke. No matter where you were in the world, everyone knew Coke. And their world vision of having a Coke within arm's reach was attainable. But it's six this year. It's not even in the top five. Not even in the top three. Does anybody know who's number one? Well, some of your Android supporters, some of your Apple. It's Apple, guys, sorry. <laughs> Apple is number one, right? And it's largely thanks to these two devices, the iPad and the iPhone. Apple quickly climbed and is on top of the summit of the most valuable brands from 2013. If you have to do those animated uh, market value things, you'll see how quickly they jumped from, from 2013 without even being in the top 15 or 20, they went all the way to number one, thanks to two devices. And it surpassed Coke itself in 2013, like we said. Yes, today, the three most valuable brands are Google, Apple, and Amazon. They're all jostling, but according to Forbes, that's where I get my stats, uh, Apple is number one. You know I like Apple, clearly. But do you know, I was first attracted to Apple as a brand and their products when they were far from popular and mainstream. Some people would doubt that, but it's true. In fact, that's why the reason I was attracted to them in the first place, because they weren't so in your face everywhere. They were obscure. They were subtle. The whole advertising campaign from 1997 to 2002, when I was a young teen, very I was easily influenced as a young teen and an adult. Apple had a campaign called Think Different. Does anybody remember that campaign? Right. This was, now, you can say what you want, but IBM's slogan at that time, which was the leading hardware provider, was called Think. Their slogan was Think. So you don't have to go too far to understand why they said Think Different. They weren't popular. They weren't mainstream. They weren't the number one brand of people's lips at that stage. So they tried to be the other guy, the less obscure. 
and they came up with the, the advertising campaign called Think Different. Now, instead of me just talking, why don't we watch that right now? Want to watch the ad? Let's, let's watch the ad. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits. The rebels. The troublemakers. The round pegs in the square holes. The ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them. Because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. Good advertising campaign, isn't it? Just going through that, not a familiar faces today anymore. And a lot of those people that changed the world according to Apple, we don't, do we have any representatives of our generation like that? I don't know. You see, like I said, as a teenager and going into young adulthood, I, see, I saw myself and maybe I still see myself as a maverick. Yes, largely thanks to the, my, one of my favorite movies, Top Gun. Right? A maverick, what is a maverick? A maverick is someone who swims upstream goes against the grain. It doesn't follow the norm. Yeah. See, after first getting an iPhone and MacBook before they were fashionable and popular, it's a bit jarring for me today to see how mainstream they have become. Apple, to this day, like I said, is the world's most valuable brand at $205 billion. So no, no, no longer are they the, the other guy. Think different. They are mainstream. They are popular. Now today, ironically, Apple finds itself being rejected by younger mavericks of this age just because of their popularity and their commercial success. Right, Siobhan? Yeah. These mavericks reason their rejection, stating that Apple has lost its vision and its impact it's once had as an emerging voice. And maybe there's truth to that. You see, some people say they're more concerned with commercial success, staying at the top of the brand summit, instead of making a real change the advert that we just saw promotes. You know what? Maybe these young mavericks are right. So you're all scratching your head, why is Stephen talking about Apple? Well, you see, I began to ask myself a question of another mainstream brand that maybe has followed the same fate as Apple throughout history. Christianity. Is Christianity today at a point that it finds itself being criticized and rejected by young mavericks all over due to its size, popularity, and commercial success? Yes, I said, commercial success. See, most people point to Christianity and their main point of rejection is that it's no longer relevant. It's more concerned with its commercial success, staying at the top of the brand summit, instead of seeking real change, the gospel itself describes and exhorts. And you know what? Maybe they're right. So why am I talking about brand? Why am I talking about brand? Why am I referring to Christianity as a brand? 
Please don't get offended. You'll see where I'm going. Let's unpack the term brand that you guys accurately recognize immediately. Does anybody know what the word brand means and where it was derived from? There we go. Cattle, right? The, the, the term brand is derived from the old Norse word brand. Okay, which means to burn. Now, come on, Afrikaans, we all understand what brand means, don't we? We know it means to burn. And that's exactly what brand comes from, where they used to brand cattle. You've seen the cowboy movies. They put the hot iron of a logo, let's say Maverick. They put that M in the, coal, in the fire, they heat it up, and they, they pluck, pluck it onto the, onto the cow or the bull. And that's the brand. Now, its original use in the term, do you know, was practiced on livestock more than 4,000 years ago. That's the early Bronze Age. To give you an idea, it's, it's just before the time of Egypt brands were used. And it was continually used throughout history from that time all the way, like we know, to today. But over history, brands were used in such following ways, where farmers claiming their property, like we just said, to artisans, artists claiming credit for their work, factories claiming their products, and companies claiming their products were better than others. Throughout history, they've even dug up old pottery in ancient Egypt, and they found that a craftsman or artist has done his initials on each artwork to know that this is his art, right? It's been there all along. Branding in its meaning and its origin is literally illustrated by one thing, distinguishing mark. This product is different because of this distinguishing mark. Today, think Nike, right? You know the difference between any other thing and Nike because they have a distinguishing mark, literally, a mark an item that sets it apart from all others. So, if we had to go back to the birth of our Christian faith, and we actually had to think of the distinguishing mark or symbol or logo of Christianity, what would it be? The cross. A lot of you would say the cross. Was that the first symbol that was used by the Christian faith? The fish. Great. Guys are on point today. The fish. Siobhan, can you put the, the picture up for us? Now, I'm doing a little bit of Greek, not Hebrew today. The Greek word for fish is ichthus. Say that, ichthus. All right, you got the picture in front of you. Now, what was interesting is Christians adopted this formerly pagan symbol of the fish for, for themselves. Now, it's important to note it was formerly pagan. Why? Because number one, they were, they were in hostile territory. If you had to wear a cross around your neck and walk out in the street, you're going to get killed. So they had to adopt something that was common in the day. And they adopted it and they changed it. Right? And what they changed it to is they put an acronym there. You can see it's Greek letters and each first letter of words that we're going to read makes up that word ichthus, which means fish. So it's not only, it's, the acronym spells fish in Greek. So instead of me trying to uh, speak Greek, I'm going to... I am Greek, but I, I went to the, the source. This is how you say Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. Jesus Christos, Theu Ios, Sotir. Jesus Christos, Theu Ios, Sotir. See, that way I can't get lectured later. <laughs> so you can see... 
And what was interesting is when a Christian would meet each other in, in, in the street and they weren't allowed to, and there was a stranger, like, I don't know Craig and Craig, but I'm like, he's something different about him. I think he's a Christian, but I don't want to just ask him in case he isn't. What would I do? I'd walk to him, we'd get to a piece of dirt, and I would draw the, the top half of the curve only. And then if he was a believer, he would complete and draw the bottom half of the curve and make it a fish. And that way, without saying anything and without too much risk, we would know that we are fellow believers. That was the first symbol, if you will, representation of Christianity used. And why fish? Why ichthus? Well, we know. Jesus called us fishes of men. Right? Fish. Also, Jesus fed 5,000 with, two, with two, uh, five loaves and two fish. But also, because of water baptism, we, we they practiced water baptism as Christian, which was very odd in those days, and full immersion, right? So you can clearly see the parallel between Christians and fish. Well, let me read you a second, uh, second century theologian, Tertullian, and he puts it this way. We little fishes, after the image of our ichthus, Jesus Christ, are born in the water. Remember that name, Tertullian. Let me read the quote one more time. We little fishes... After the image of our ichthus, Jesus Christ, are born in the water. Remember, ichthus means Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. There's no mistaking who they belong to and who they are part of. Now, you guys accurately said today that our symbol for our Christian faith is the cross. And... What was surprising when, in my research is that the Christian cross was only used after the time of Constantine. He was, he was the one that made the cross the prominent figure of Christendom. And, and that has remained till this day, where the cross has been a symbol for our faith. And we don't have to go and explain why. We just have to remember what Jesus did on that cross to understand why it is a symbol of our faith today. However, have you... Driving around town, Cape Town, South Africa, have you noticed the depreciated use of the cross on churches? In fact, have you noticed that churches don't even call themselves churches anymore? In, uh, whatever, I'm not going to make a commentary on it. It doesn't matter as long as Jesus has been celebrated. But even the word church has been dropped and they would use a, either a local name of an area or a, a catchy name or a phrase or a branding, you know. But even a cross or the name church is being dropped from our places of worship. Just interesting, isn't it? That's what I'm going to say on the matter. But my question to you again is, are these historical logos or symbols the distinguishing mark of our faith? Is the cross and the fish what really sets us apart, makes us the distinguishing mark for our faith? No. What does? Yeah? You see, the real mark... And the real brand of Christianity is something very different. Let me unpack brand in how the world would unpack it today. It's no longer just, brand is no longer just a logo or a symbol. Just like you said, our Christian faith is, is not just a fish or a cross. It's something more. Well, may of you, some of you know a man called Seth Godin. Basically, he's an entrepreneur and a blogger who thinks about marketing ideas in the digital age. And he's, he's one of those voices that people love to read about today. This is what he says what a brand is. A brand is a set of expectations, memories, stories, and relationships 
that taken together account for a consumer's decision to choose one product or service over another. A brand is not defined by the organization, but it is the consumer's perception of the organization. So if we define a brand as a set of expectations, of memories, stories, relationships, and experiences, what is the true brand of Christianity? How can we define and describe our Savior and the early church movement that exploded on the scene? There's one word that I'm looking for. Love. Love. Christ love. That is the, the one thing that really makes us different to the world around us. Let me read it to you from, from the Bible where Apostle John declares that Christ's love is the true distinguishing mark, the true brand of Christianity. And before we read this from the Amplified Version, I want to stress, when I put that into my, on the website and I research and I get the original Greek, it doesn't just use the word love, it uses the word agape, and throughout, in all its forms, agapitos, agapao, which means he's talking about a certain type of love, and that is Christ's love, sacrificial love, selfless love. So let's read it together from the Amplified, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7 to 8. All right, if you, if you can either get it on your iPhones or you can read it on the screens. Beloved, let us unselfishly love and seek the best for one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves others is born of God and knows God through personal experience. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God, does not and never did know Him. For God is love. I love this part. He is the originator of love and it is an enduring attribute of His nature. There's many scriptures I could have pulled to talk about love, but for me this one just says everything. I'm going to read it one more time. Beloved, let us unselfishly love and seek the best for one another. For love is from God and everyone who loves others is born of God and knows God through personal experience. The one who does not love has not become acquainted with God, does not and never did know Him, for God is love. He is the originator of love, and it is an enduring attribute of His nature. Christianity's expectations, memories, stories, relationships, and experiences are completely embodied in and by Christ's love. You would agree, amen? I doubt any of us would disagree with John in his words. But another question, what does this love that John tells us about, what does it really look like for us? Again, if you would have to point to the cross, you'd be correct. We know the cross as a symbol because it represents what Jesus perfectly demonstrated this love for us in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. This is what love looks like. It's his enduring attribute of his nature. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes I think, well, Jesus, you could do it. But man, I struggle. 
Many of us feel that this type of love was a love only Jesus, love itself, personified, could do, could share. Well, let's take a cue from Apple and let's think differently, don't we? Why, why don't we think differently? Let's look at a small group of mavericks, although not perfect, displayed and demonstrated this perfect love in a dangerous, corrupt, and burning world around them. So just for this moment, we know when we speak about love, we speak about Jesus. But let's look, let's look at another group of people. Just for the case for today. Let's look at the group called the first Christians. The early church. Before it became mainstream. Before it became popular. Where they were empowered. And for me, this is the key. As we sang today, they were empowered with the very nature of Christ's love within them. Through the Holy Spirit. We see the true brand of Christianity being radically demonstrated. Let's read. When I speak about the early church, all of you would jump to Acts, and that would be correct. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. I'm going to read from the ESV. The words are on the screen from the, the ESV. But it will be, read whatever translation you have. It will be interesting. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. And they, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, all, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and, attending, and, sorry, and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, we read that and we're like, wow, how did they do that? And again, the answer is the Holy Spirit. It's no coincidence that this is shortly after Pentecost where the Holy Spirit was poured out in a, in a miraculous way upon them, where they were filled with the Christ love, like we read, the enduring attribute of who He is, filled their hearts, enabling them to live this kind of love. But you see, I purposely don't want to just focus on biblical accounts because we've become very familiar with them. We say, okay, that's what the early church did. Great. I want, you to, see, I want to fast forward a little bit throughout the centuries as the early church was still growing and still developing. You know, the, when we finish our Bibles, do you all agree that the, the, the church wasn't as it is today? It wasn't this large institution that was widely accepted and everyone was mostly believers. No, it was still an emerging group of mavericks. Their numbers increased day by day, like we read, from 3,000 to 5,000, and it just grew. But it was still the minority. So, let's time travel a little bit. And let's go further into the century. Let's travel to the second century. And I want us to understand the very reason for this rapid growth. So it's growing rapidly, day by day, from Jesus' death and resurrection, these early group of disciples and apostles now spreading the word. The, the word. You know, everyone says the catalyst of how the church started spreading was when, Jesus, uh, when Stephen got killed. You remember that. Full of the Holy Spirit and power, he gets killed and it, this, the gospel gets spread. But now, into the second century, it's still growing rapidly. It's still flourishing. It's still thriving. But it's not yet mainstream. I'm going to read you that name I told you to remember. 
Tertullian. Remember, he's a second century theologian. That's all you need to know. And this is how he describes how Christian lived in his time, in the second century, and the reaction they caused. For me, this was amazing. Let me read it to you. It is our care for the helpless, our practice of loving kindness, that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Now he starts giving the insights of the opponents. Only look, they say. Look how they love one another. And he gives a commentary. They themselves being given to mutual hatred. Look how they are prepared to die for one another. Commentary. They themselves being readier to kill each other. Thus had this saying been fulfilled. Hereby shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love to one another. For me, it was amazing to see in the second century, time has passed, significant time has passed. Christianity is still rapidly growing day by day. And these Christians, that we wouldn't classify as the Acts early Christians, although still in its beginning stages, were living like Jesus. Where he says, only look, people that weren't Christ ones would say, only look. Look how they love one another. Look how they prepared to die for one another. It was evident. The love of Christ was distinguishable from everybody else. Christianity grew by preaching and practicing the gospel of love and charity. Not sermons, not big missionary tents and evangelical outreaches, but everyday people living in extraordinary love. A love that the gospel, that Jesus himself demonstrated, of love and charity. What did, give me, let me give you some practical outlets of what it looked like in the second century. It said, included alms giving, giving of alms, care for widows, orphans, slaves, travelers, the sick, the imprisoned, and the poor. Even to this day, that's what Christianity should be defined by, acts of love to those that are in need of it. You see, I was touched in praise and worship today with that new song, which I've never heard before, that we ended on about loving our neighbor, loving our colleague. And that's what Christendom is all about. It's all about us receiving the very nature, the very essence of, of Christ himself. As the Amplified said, his enduring attribute. It's about receiving his love so much that it defines us, that it makes us, that is our distinguishing mark. You see, in, on Bible study on Wednesday, Siobhan really blessed us with, with the unpacking of the word salt and light. When Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount and he talks about salt and light. And all of you are familiar with that. Oh yeah, salt brings flavor and light brings light. But what was amazing when Siobhan harkened us back to the previous week where we went through the Beatitudes, where Jesus gives nine proclamations about the down and outs. The poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of, the, the kingdom of God. The meek, right? Those who mourn. The people that are down and out. And then Siobhan tied a nice string to it. Where he said, we have nothing else to give other than Christ himself. They are truly blessed. Those who are down and out are truly blessed because they are in a position to add nothing. And that's the beauty. We can add nothing. But just receive Christ and let him pour out. And that's what it truly means to be salt and light, is that the very essence of Christ through the Holy Spirit within us defines who we are. We are salty 
and we are light through His essence, from His enduring attribute. You see, in Acts, we can read, we can read these examples of these apostles, and, and not just apostles. We know Peter, when he walked across someone and he, and he asked for silver and gold, there was a crippled beggar, and he said, silver and gold have I none, but he healed him right there and then through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Amen? What about Tabitha, also known as Dorcas? She is cited as an early disciple, full of good works and acts of charity. She was known in Acts 9, verse 36. It was evident. It was manifested. That essence of Christ within them was manifested to the world around them. Let me read to you again. It says, The emerging church, we see also how the early Christians looked after the widows, the orphans, the sick and disabled, prisoners, poor people, people who needed a burial. Some people couldn't afford a burial, couldn't arrange a burial. The Christians did it. And it says, and slaves. You know, today we got the, the big LGBTQI, whatever. Slaves was the big thing in those days. Slavery. Where Christians, as a, a master who would own many slaves, would become a Christian, and slaves just the same would become a Christian. And Paul gives a really good insight. And read the book of Philemon on what, how this relationship dynamic would be changed. Not by doing the obvious, but doing the subversive, by loving your slave, by loving your master, no matter where you find yourself in the spectrum, by taking the Christ nature of love and working it out. Amen? We also see how the church, the early church, cared for others, even outsiders, in the times of great calamities, as well as how they showed hospitality to fellow brethren who are on a journey. You see, you can just read through the history books, never mind the Bible. And that's what's beautiful, that non-believing historians can account for the works of Christians by looking at the love that they poured out. It's recorded in history. Let me give you another example. Let's fast forward another two centuries to the fourth century. And let me give you an example of a self-denying and self-emptying love that these early believers showed. Yes, they're still early in the Christian faith. It wasn't an institution yet. Constantine didn't yet make it, or the Roman Empire maybe. But it wasn't so mainstream as it is today. I'm going to read you what happened in the events of a plague that broke out during the reign of Maximus, sorry, Maximinus, Daza, in the 4th in the century, 303 to 313 AD. And this is from another Christian historian known as Eusebius. Doesn't matter, just read what understand what he says here. This is the quote. For the Christians were the only people who amid such terrible ills showed their fellow feeling and humanity by their actions. Day by day some would busy themselves with attending to the dead and burying them, for there were numbers to whom no one else paid any heed. No one else cared for those that were dead. Others gathered in one spot all who were afflicted by hunger throughout the whole city and gave bread to them all. When this became known, people glorified the Christian's God and convinced by the very, acts, the very facts confessed that Christians alone were truly pious and religious. Isn't that amazing? In the 4th century, that the Christians were the ones who would take someone who was just dead from a plague and they would bury them. Now you can understand seeing a dead body in a plague probably wasn't... You would walk as far as possible from this body because you didn't want to catch the plague. But the Christians were found 
picking these bodies up, digging a hole and burying them. They were found feeding people. They didn't have any food. Maybe they were plague-ridden. You see, the early Christian church and their brand of love was a radical one that took people on radical trajectories. We see values of self-sacrificial love and other regard in the context of suffering and affliction based on the example of Christ and the apostles. They saw, they read what Jesus and the apostles did, and they did like manner. Filled with the Holy Spirit, with His essence, they went out and loved the world radically. Now, by the early 4th century, this obscure movement of Christendom on the, on the margins of the Roman Empire would have grown to such an extent that it would eventually become the official religion of the Roman Empire. This movement certainly impacted the world in many positive ways. You would agree. Amen? So those that persecuted them in the first place, the Romans, Christendom became so distinguishable, so, like it said there, pious and religious, that they truly embodied what they taught, that it became so mainstream that it was adopted by their very oppressors. And we know... We know the rest is history. Today, the question facing all us Christians is, are we concerned with our own success, staying on the top of everything, instead of seeking real change the gospel itself describes and exhorts? Do we radically love like the early church did? Are we as radical as Christ and his apostles were? Has the success and mainstream of Christianity resulted in the dilution and loss of this brand essence of Christ's love. You see, I'm asking you these questions not to make you feel uncomfortable, but because I'm already uncomfortable. See, I constantly ask myself, the more I study and encounter the radical message and the reality of the gospel, the more I question whether my love walk with the world around me is up to scratch. And I'm just being honest. Because we live in a world where Christianity is, is no longer what it should be. It's no longer the distinguishing mark that the world should know. It has just become popular. It has become mainstream. Where at school someone asks you if you're a Christian, you could respond yes, and that would be fine. The conversation would continue where it was. It doesn't challenge this world as it should. It doesn't cause an emotional reaction. We all agree and we can all classify and testify for the love of Christ that we've received. And we all know that it was radical. Amen? That Christ's love is radical. But you know what? Radical love loves radically. If we acknowledge and, and understand that Jesus in his radical love died for our sins to forgive us and we just find that amazing and we can't describe it as believers and we're sitting in worship with that, that sense of wow. Then we need to continue that story and go out there and show that love to others. Radical love loves radically. This message is meant to stir your heart. That's my heart behind it. It's meant to challenge you. To challenge your comfort, like Michael was praying, and to challenge our faith. Are we sitting too much? I would like to leave you with words that are not my, my own this morning. They are words of a love maverick, a woman that demonstrated this radical Christ brand of love to the world not so long ago, a love that 
when I was growing up, everybody took note. And you know, I, in preparing this, I was re reminded of this woman, and I was like, has there been another one like her since? And I don't know. I know Nelson Mandela demonstrated a, a measure of love to this country that this country didn't understand or even deserve, but he did. And we are grateful for him in that example. But someone of faith that you would classify as Christian to change the world as she did, in my opinion, I ask, have we had someone since? And I don't know. I'm going to read you the words of Mother Teresa. I'm going to read you two quotes in closing. The first, her first words accurately diagnose our modern world's ills. Let me read them to you now. And all you youngsters who don't know who Mother Teresa is, please do the mainstream thing and Google her. All right? Mother Teresa says, The greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical disease with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There is a hunger for love. There is a hunger for God. Man, I do not know, and I do not think you can classify and diagnose our modern world today better than she did. Now, she didn't leave us with a problem. She demonstrated a solution just like her Messiah before her. And this is the second quote. What are we as Christians, Christ ones, Christ ones that to love, what are we to do? This is what she says. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression of God's kindness, kindness in your face, kindness in your eyes, kindness in your smile. I'm going to read that again. Let no one ever come to you without leaving better and happier. Be the living expression, the living brand of God's kindness, of God's love. Love in your face, love in your eyes, and love in your smile. This morning is to encourage my own heart and to encourage yours that we have all that we need, and it's not of ourselves. We have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the enduring attribute of Christ within us. We just got to stop. Michael uses the word resisting him. We need to yield to his love within our hearts. And you know what it looks like? You know what happens when the church stops resisting Christ? It's the early church. It's loving the world. That it's, it's loving the unlovables. It's loving those who feel are our enemies. I think Christianity should, should put down its sword and pick up its towel. We shouldn't stop defending our faith, but we should be advancing our faith. And the way we advance our faith is with love. By loving everybody, our enemies. I mean, come on. Jesus himself, being crucified to a cross, by Jews and Romans alike, tells us to love our enemies. Yet we are fixated with categorizing who believes and who doesn't believe. Do you not think the world would truly know who our Savior is if we go out there and love every single person like he did? I do. I think this is what this world needs. This world doesn't need one Mother Teresa. This world needs a, a, a group of Mother Teresas. And that's who we are to be. Amen? So, also, 
if anybody feels that either they have never had this experience of the Holy Spirit within their heart that burns within them to desire to, to do these acts of love in yielding to His Spirit, not out of our own strength and out of our own flesh, but in response to what He has already given us. If you feel you do not have that, please come speak to Michael or myself or Siobhan and we'll pray for you. We'll pray for that the Holy Spirit be manifested in your life with such a powerful way that when you go to work the next day that they will see that you're radically different. Because that's what we believe. That's what happened at Pentecost where a group of disciples, not knowing what their next move were, were standing in a room in unity and praying. And from that moment, everything changed. So let's close in prayer. We hope that you've enjoyed this message. For additional resources and more information, come and visit us at alphaomega.org.za.